Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Royal Lady McLean, and tonight my comrade in arms will be Mike Bancole. Mike, welcome. Always a pleasure, Moya. It feels like ages since we did a show together. <laughs> feels like ages since I've actually done the show full stop. I keep being on holiday at the moment, and long <laughs> may it continue. Now, we've got a lot coming up on tonight's show. It's another bad day for Rishi Sunak's government. We'll run through exactly why. And a landmark Supreme Court ruling about the actions of a Met police officer could change police accountability. Plus, Starmer's purge of the Labour left continues. Stay tuned for all of that. Let's go to our first story. Keir Starmer today launched the fifth of his five missions for those who are keeping count. Now, this one was on education, which meant, obviously, he assembled a group of young people to stand behind him at the speech and press conference. But two of those young people wanted to talk about something else. When talented young people start to leave a town, it becomes hard to break free from that dynamic. It's a vicious cycle. It leads to communities, far too many in this country, where the only jobs on offer are low-paid and insecure. And insecurity is the enemy of opportunity. It places barriers. Not just, e not just economic barriers. Pledge, reinstate your pledge for 28 billion per year. I gave my, I, on the mission on uh, green power, we did that last month. We've so done that one. Will you just... We, we are on the side of economic growth. Will you just let me please get on with this? Thank you very much. Stop making We have already... Will you just let me finish this and I'll come and talk to you about it? Thank you very much. Look, we need a green new deal right now. Look, my last speech was about this. Will you please? There's lots of people who want to hear this. Please don't drown them out. Please don't drown them out. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right now. Those protesters were members of the activist group Green New Deal Rising, and they were complaining about Labour dropping its pledge to invest £28 billion on the green transition every year from its first year in government. Labour have now downgraded that policy to instead reach that £28 billion a year by the final year of a first term. As you saw there, the protesters were escorted off, but the topic of climate change and climate protests didn't go away. On Just Stop Oil, I mean, I just think they need to just stop. Um, they're in, you know, particularly this last week, they've been interrupting iconic sporting events, causing massive disruption. There's a huge arrogance involved that they're the only people that understand the argument. Their tactics are the only uh, tactics are going to win. <laughs> and when I put what they're doing against what we set out in our um, mission about clean energy, about net zero, you can see the difference between, um, you know, protest and power. The gluing yourself, interrupting, interfering with other people's lives in this arrogant way, compared with um, the actual change we can bring about, which is with a Labour government absolutely committed to clean power by 2030. Continuing on that theme of denigrating the value of protest, Starmer tweeted this after his speech. Labour's opportunity mission will give young people from all backgrounds the chances they want and need in life. I won't see working people held back any longer, and I'll never be shouted down or distracted from that mission. You can tell that he tweeted that quickly because he's written people twice and it hasn't been spell-checked. Now, 
I'm joined by one of the people who did shout Keir Starmer down, Sophia Cunningham, one of those activists who interrupted him during that speech. First of all, Sophia, can you start by telling us how exactly did you end up standing behind Keir Starmer? We decided to drop Keir Starmer's speech to obviously get across to him the importance of a Green New Deal. And we were kind of, we knew that the event was happening because quite a few people were young Labour members. And then when we got there, we were just kind of told to go up and stand on the stage in position and kind of be behind Keir Starmer for the photo ops. They could be like, look at all these young people who agree with our policies. And yeah, we kind of weren't expecting it. But then when we were there, we kind of felt we couldn't let the opportunity go to waste. So let me get this straight. You guys just turned up as young people at this event and then independently were corralled to stand behind Keir Starmer's props. They hadn't, you hadn't prepared any of that bit. No, I think they just kind of assumed that we were like young Labour members, which we didn't necessarily make clear yes or no. And then I think it was just kind of, you know, come over here. They're like, you know, you're quite short, go to the front. And then suddenly I was like half a metre behind him. Like, I'm going to be in all the photos. Wow. Okay. Now, some people have argued that Labour's downgrading of their pledge, you know, 28 billion a year by the end of a first term is still quite good. Do you agree with this? Well, I think Kirsten himself said the biggest challenge we face with tackling climate change is not climate deniers, but climate delayers. And I think that exhibits that Keir is exactly that. And what we're asking for isn't necessarily particularly radical or particularly out there. We want nationalisation, which is quite popular, and natural nature service to create that economic growth that Keir Starmer talks about. We want a green jobs, we want a green jobs guarantee, we want a wealth tax for one percent and permanent windfall taxes. To me, that feels like that should be part of any progressive Labour policy. And if they're listening to young people and if they want to move our voices forward, and as I said in that video, they're on our side and they don't side with polluters, it feels like a no-brainer and an easy win for the Labour Party that they're missing out on. Starmer in that video, uh, when he was asked, you know, what what are you committed to? He said we're committed to economic growth. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but he said, we're committed to economic growth. What do you make of a statement like that? Were you satisfied with his response? I think when he talks about economic growth, he misses the opportunity that potential government that he might lead has in that the Green New Deal encapsulates so much more about economic growth. It's about social growth, but also about providing opportunities across society, which is what he talks about. He talks a lot in his speech about hope and optimism and wanting next generations to have the same things that he grew up with. Well, listen to us and talk to those young people that you say you want to create this future for. And, you know, don't shout us down. And in any case, I think that's what he was doing, not us in that video, because we have tried to engage with him. And all you get is a brick wall. You say you've tried to engage with him. What did that look like in the past? Well, obviously, you know, you do all the usual, like, you know, sending a letter, sending an email. Um, The other boy who was with me is one of his constituents. And kind of it's, Nice protest. We went to the um, Labour HQ a couple of weeks ago to launch our kind of Labour Be Bold campaign, which is about basically saying that like, Labour have a massive opportunity in the next election and they shouldn't miss it and that they need to really push climate forward as something that is essential for both this country. And I think when you talk about building a coalition in governments, young people are essential for that. And if you're alienating 18 year olds, what on earth is a six year old going to think of you? What could Keir Starmer commit to that would satisfy you so you wouldn't be interrupting him again? I think, obviously, to commit to reinstating his £28 billion a year promise and to agree to permanent and progressive windfill taxes, to commit to nationalisation of water and the railways, to um, bring in a national nature service to provide a, new different, a different type of job for the future, 
and um, also to uh, bring around a wealth tax for one percent to help fund some of these policies. So I think one of the issues at the moment is Labour are going around thinking that you can fund these policies while being physically responsible, whatever that means. But they're unwilling to face the reality of if we want to create a good progressive government with policies for all and jobs for all, you have to invest and you have to not be afraid to do that. You're obviously a politically engaged young person. Are you someone who wants to put their vote in Labour at the next general election? How, are you committed to Labour? Are you a member of Labour? So I joined the Labour Party when I was like 14, as you do. And kind of initially I was like, yay, because I was kind of quite involved in the climate strikes. And I thought, you know, this is a way to push it forward through a more like mainstream approach. And kind of what I found time after time is that young people's voices just weren't valued. And kind of that you would often be in situations where like because of your age or because of kind of, I know, your race or your class, that you weren't really taken seriously. And you kind of saw a lot of the same like systems and oppression you see in society replicated there. So I think I will vote Labour in the next election because I feel like there's kind of no choice other than to do that. But I wouldn't necessarily be compelled to go and canvas or talk to my friends or those who are less politically engaged to say, you know, come out and vote, get your provisional so you can have ID to vote. I just don't think I would feel like kind of empowered to do that. And I think for people who say, well, you know, you might stop Labour getting in because, you know, you're exposing some. What I'd say is that like we're a small group of activists trying to really make a difference to improve climate action and he is in a position to make an incredible change and I feel like if we don't take the opportunity to put pressure on him kind of when is our time I thought there's an interesting point that you you said you're going to vote Labour anyway as a young person you know Stammer is sort of I think banking on this idea that by default the Labour Party are going to be the only political option. But what do you think it does to young people like yourself? If you're going to vote Labour, but you're going to be reluctant, you won't go on canvas, do you feel more politically disengaged from parliamentary politics if the Labour Party is not representing the issues that you feel should be front and centre, like the climate? Absolutely. And I think it's very demotivating. I think also if you see it on top of the other U-turns around, you know, free university tradition and things like that, it's very clear the Labour Party is not a place for young people. But I also think that ethnic minorities, like so long kind of the Labour vote has taken for granted that, you know, we'll all come out to vote for them, vote for them. And I think what you're going to see is both people, particularly young people, become demotivated to go out and vote. And I think for me personally, I'm not a member of the Labour Party anymore because I don't necessarily see it as like a vehicle for change where through conference or things like that, I can advance my point of view. And I feel that like what you're going to see a bit like kind of David Cameron's message is that more and more ethnic minority people will start to vote conservative if we're just constantly taken for granted. Sophia Cunningham, thank you so much for joining us. Now, the purpose of today's speech from Starmer wasn't to talk about the climate, but it was actually education. And Starmer committed Labour to breaking what he called the class ceiling. I see this mission as our core purpose and my personal cause, to fight at every stage for every child, the pernicious idea that background equals destiny, that your circumstances, who you are, where you come from, who you know, might shape your life more than your talent, your effort and your enterprise. Starmer's proposals included a review of the national curriculum, including a focus on speaking skills for young people. He also said Labour would create more opportunities for vocational training and outlined an ambition to improve teacher recruitment and retention, though 
without making any commitments on pay. In his interview round this morning, Stammer was pushed on a policy that seemed to be missing from his plan. Let's turn to how ambitious it is. One of the things you you need to be in order to achieve those things when you're at school is not hungry. I've been talking, and I'd like to play you a clip from her, if I may, is Councillor Jasmine Alley, who's from Southwark Council, Labour Council in South London, who says that the free school meals programme for primary schools there, uh, which they've had for a decade, is, as she puts it, a no-brainer. This in itself has contributed to our school improvement success. Before we implemented it, we did a pilot and we found that pupils made between four and eight weeks more progress than expected. Teachers themselves said that the behaviour in the class was better, pupils were more ready to learning and the concentration was there because if you've got hungry children, they're not going to have the concentration, are they? That's the point, isn't it? Why will Labour, when it's happening in Wales under Labour there, it's happening in London under a Labour mayor, why will Labour nationally not commit to free school meals for all primary school kids? Well, Justin, I, I listened carefully to you. I, I heard your uh, mm. earlier interview, in fact, and, and obviously, you know, it's clear there's a healthy debate um, across society, and particularly in the Labour Party, about um, free school meals. And, and some councils, and as you rightly say, Wales and and the mayor have already committed to it. Um, we've set out our position, which is breakfast clubs for every child, which will make a material difference. Um, and what I'm setting out today is, you know, the, the structural, medium, long-term changes but, that we want but, to but make. But why are you not um, doing it? Is, is it simply difference. the money? Oh, the money is a, a big factor, Justin. I won't shy away from this. Um, you know, if we're privileged enough to come into power and to serve, and I recognise we've got to earn every vote, I'm not getting ahead of myself, we will inherit, if we do, a broken economy after 13 years of failure, broken public services, um, and we have to have clear rules about what we can afford but and what we can't afford. But I suppose the argument... Mike, after listening to that, do you think that Labour has what it takes to break this class ceiling? I'm not so sure. I think breaking the class ceiling is more of an, an increased focus on literacy and vocational education. I think Labour's entire policy platform has to point to the idea that class and tackling the class issues that afflict this country are central to their politics. And I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, we look at free school meals, for example, the failure to provide free school meals or to promise to provide free school meals to all primary school children is an, is an open goal. They're missing Labour. You know, we know that, you know, following Marcus Rashford's advocacy on this issue in 2020, we know how important free school meals are, not just in the immediate term for students, but also in the long term. There is a link between educational attainment and free school meals. So if Labour talking about breaking the class ceiling, not committing to free school meals for primary school children, is missing an open goal. Looking beyond their policies in education, Labour have committed to the two-child um, benefit cap, which will affect low-income families. You know, Angela Rayner has, on, t on LBC earlier on today, she's committed or she's failed to commit that Labour are going to repeal the public order bill. And we know that protests are fundamental working class communities when it comes to organising. So when you look at Labour's entire political kind of agenda at the moment, there's nothing in it that suggests that they're trying to address the issue of class that afflicts this nation, whether it's in education, whether it's in housing, even in housing. Last week I spoke with Navarra about you know, Labour committing to the right to buy scheme. Now that has etting to the stock of social housing in this country. So across the board, education, housing, all of these different sectors of policies, Labour haven't you know, focused on addressing the big issues that affect some of the you know, poorest families in this country, some of the families that are struggling the most in this country. So talk about breaking the, the, you know, the, the class ceiling because of an increased focus on oracy and vocational education. This is the mark for me.
Let's go into our next story. It's been a pretty bad day for the Tory government. When is it isn't? Uh, as they've lost a, another case in court this time, it is about the COVID-19 inquiry. Specifically, it concerns whether the COVID inquiry should have the right to see any evidence it wants to, including, say, unredacted WhatsApp messages, even if the government deems those messages to be irrelevant. The Cabinet Office had argued there should be no obligation to hand over what they call, quote, unambiguously irrelevant messages. But the High Court has decided it is up to the inquiry itself to decide what is and isn't relevant to their investigation. And the government has said they will comply with the ruling. What else can they do, really? But also today, the Standards Committee has released its report about MP Chris Pincher, unfortunate name for the allegations that he is facing. He's been alleged to have groped two men in a private members club last year. Now, the Standards Committee made this judgment. The committee has reviewed all evidence at its disposal, including witness statements and accompanying exhibits, and states that this, quote, manifestly meets the evidential test of the balance of probabilities, and that Mr. Pincher's behaviour was, quote, unwanted, upsetting, and inappropriate. The committee concluded that Mr. Pincher's conduct was, quote, completely inappropriate, profoundly damaging to the individuals concerned, and represented an abuse of power. The committee ruled Pincher should be suspended from the Commons for eight weeks, meaning a recall petition can be launched in his constituency, and yes, a by-election is likely. Labour's Thangham Debonair responded to the findings. Madam Deputy Speaker, I'd like to address the Standards Committee's report published this morning into the member for Tamworth. I am shocked and saddened at its findings, and my thoughts, and I hope the thoughts of the whole House are with the victims. As well as the impact on them of the member's behaviour, the committee found that the actions of the member significantly affected the public's perception of this House. I'm afraid to say that shamefully it appears the Conservative Party had protected and even promoted him. The allegations levelled at Chris Pincher were part of the downfall of Boris Johnson. That was after it emerged that Pincher had been investigated for his conduct three years before. Yet, despite knowing this, Johnson has still appointed him Deputy Chief Whip and insisted on standing by him. Mike, do both of these stories show how long a shadow Boris Johnson casts on Rishi Sunak's government? Absolutely. I think, you know, Boris Johnson in many ways and him becoming a leader and a prime minister um, in 2019 shows that he was the beginning of the end for the Conservative Party. I mean, they elected a man as leader of the party who, was, who, was, who rose to notoriety for being a liar. His premiership was defined by him being a liar. He eroded the trust of the public. So the Conservatives were trusted with the manifesto, if you like, in the general election, the mandates sorry, in, in, in the general election 2019 of the people. And that was quickly eroded by Boris Johnson. They've never, they've never really recovered since. So Liz Trust, I mean, the less said about her premiership, the better. And sure, Sunak has stayed the ship to some extent. I mean, there, there aren't that many scandals at the moment when it comes to the Conservative Party. But, you know, the, the spectre of Johnson looms large. And I think that most voters will turn away from the Conservative Party at, at the next general election. You know, we are looking at, you know, a, a likely a Labour and Starmer-led government um, following the next general election. So the spectre of, of Johnson looms large, partly because it was the beginning of the end for Sunak and the Conservative Party. What's also interesting is actually a lot of, you know, Johnson's authoritarian policies are still being pursued actively by Sunak's government. So the public order bill, um, you know, the, the elections bill, um, the Rwanda policy was kind of birthed, or the beginnings of it were birthed under Johnson's government as well. So 
There's petrol Johnson looms large, not only because it led to the beginning of the end for the Conservative Party, but also because the Conservatives are committed to this authoritarian approach to politics, which isn't very popular amongst the British public and will cost them at the next general election. Yeah, Boris Johnson is so fascinating because it did rather feel that the Conservatives had, you know, which way modern man? Uh, and they chose the path where they were like, we're going to go with the cartoonish confidence huckster and hope that it works out. It's the short-termism that I'm always talking about. They're like, we want the votes in the short term, we want the popularity. Who cares if he's clearly unfit to be a long-term leader or somebody that actually has a long-term strategy for this party and is merely out for himself? He'll get us the votes in the short term. You know, a death now. But then again, it also marks the end of the traditional Tory cycle. They rule and rule and rule for about 13 years. They suffer from their own overblown amount of power. Then Labour come in for a little bit. Everyone gets fed up with them. The Tories sit in opposition, come back in and do it all over again. Will we be here again in the next, I don't know, 23 years saying the same thing about another Tory minister? Maybe not if the climate has ruined us by then. But if we get that sustainable sustainable development on the go, then let's meet here and talk about the next Boris Johnson in 23 years. Now, shall we move on to our next story? In England and Wales, they've been nearly two thousand deaths in police custody or otherwise following contact with the police since 1990. Yet since 1969, there's only been two successful prosecutions of police officers for deaths that happened in custody or following police contact. Well, that might change with a major new UK Supreme Court ruling that was delivered on Wednesday. This is Jermaine Baker. He was fatally shot by a Metropolitan Police officer in December 2015 as part of an operation to intercept a prison break. Baker was unarmed and he was killed as he sat in a car. No live firearms were discovered in the vehicle. Since Baker's killing, the officer who fired the fatal shot has been involved in a protracted legal battle to prevent the possibility of facing disciplinary action. Known as W80 in court documents, the officer argued that he acted in self-defence because he honestly believed he was under attack when he shot Baker. Now, in June 2017, the Crown Prosecution Service decided not to prosecute the officer W80, but... In 2018, the police watchdog, then called the Independent Police Complaints Commission, instructed the Met to start gross misconduct proceedings against W80. W80 and the Met legally appealed this through a series of courts, culminating in a Supreme Court hearing. But the Supreme Court has now ruled against W80 and the Met, rejecting the argument that police officers can escape misconduct hearings if they honestly believed they were acting in self-defence. Instead, they say such cases should be assessed by a civil law standard, which measures such whether such a belief is reasonable or not reasonable, even if it was honestly held. This has major implications for police accountability, but it can be a little thorny to understand. So earlier, I spoke to Larry Locke, a trainee solicitor at Bat Murphy, the firm that is representing Jermaine Baker's family throughout this appeals process. And I began asking Larry what the difference is between the civil law test or the on the use of force versus the criminal test. In criminal courts, a person can use physical force to defend themselves against another person on the basis of uh, an honest belief um, about the threat that they're facing. So uh, that can mean that they'll go free uh, from, let's say, a trial for uh, you know, assault or grievous bodily harm, if they can show that they had an honest, uh, even if mistaken belief that they were in danger. 
This means that people can make unreasonable mistakes in the criminal courts if they honestly believed it was the right thing to do at the time. That uh, plays out in the criminal courts. In the civil courts, however, there's an additional threshold for self-defense uh, in order to rely on uh, re- rely on it as um, uh, a defense. That threshold being that of reasonableness. Not only do you have to show that it was an honest mistake that you made, but also it was a reasonable mistake for you to make as well. I think there's quite a good example that's come out in the criminal courts against a police officer recently uh, in the case of uh, Jordan Walker Brown. He was tasered by a Met police officer uh, in the back whilst climbing over a wall. He was left with life-changing injuries because of this. The Met police officer who was charged with previous bodily harm was actually allowed to walk free because uh, he said uh, he had an honest belief that Jordan was trying to turn around and uh, grab a knife and uh, presented a threat to him. Uh, the video evidence shows that that was completely nonsense. However, uh, because of the criminal test, that was uh, permissible and he was allowed to go free. So what does this ruling mean if police officers can now no longer say, well, I honestly thought that this person who was unarmed was a threat to me, so I shot them in the head, but now also have to prove that their mistake was a reasonable one. Who decides what's reasonable? Well, it would be the misconduct uh, panel that the police officer will be facing in disciplinary proceedings who will decide what's reasonable. So um, police officers aren't always taken to the criminal court for their bad behaviour. Really, the only accountability mechanism that the public have against the police for their misconduct is the uh, disciplinary process. Um, The complaints process uh, is another way of putting it. This essentially means that now the complaints process can can properly examine whether or not the um, decision to uh, use the force in those circumstances was reasonable. So essentially, officers can't just go around saying that it was reasonable uh, to think that someone was going to pull a knife on them when that person's running away and climbing over a wall. It will be for the misconduct panel to decide whether or not that's reasonable now. Um, it, it can't just be that uh, any any belief that the officer says is honestly held will um, will be permitted. And so these misconduct panels, who's overseeing them? Is it the police policing themselves again? Misconduct panels will either be, uh, will usually be overseen by um, the IOPC or the uh, Director of Professional Standards, depending on the seriousness of the offence. Yeah, if it's the Director of Professional Standards, it's the police policing the police, marking their own homework often. If it's the IOPC, it's uh, usually a little bit more rigorous. Surprisingly, uh, in this case, uh, this uh, Jermaine Baker's case, uh, the IOPC were actually in favour of the uh, higher standard, the civil standard for um, ensuring the officer couldn't just rely on simply just an honest mistake, which in some ways suggests that maybe they do take seriously uh, at least the appearance of accountability uh, in the disciplinary process. Whether or not that will uh, happen in practice is another thing. I mean, this is uh, seven and a half years on since Jermaine Baker's death, and we're now only just starting to get to um, the point where misconduct proceedings are actually being brought. That doesn't necessarily mean that um, the officer is going to uh, get sacked uh, or be found guilty of gross misconduct. It may be that actually the misconduct panel side with W80. It's not necessarily clear yet, but at least the uh, accountability mechanisms are 
more empowered than they were before this case. Has this ruling by the Supreme Court been at all influenced by political sea change? I know the law likes to think that it is completely objective and removed from the context that it operates in, but we know it's not. You know, the police are in a very public crisis right now. Do you think we would have seen a ruling like this made, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago? I mean, the, the Supreme Court were quite explicit about the fact that this was to ensure that the disciplinary process seems uh, a lot more robust. Um, if they'd adopted the criminal uh, mechanism, then officers who acted not only wrong, but unreasonably wrong in using force or killing someone might not be held to account. So the Supreme Court, having said explicitly that they're trying to act in um, the interests of a robust disciplinary uh, process is, is, is definitely you know, telling. Also, the fact that the IOPC, as I said, backed um, the family's arguments in the Supreme Court is also uh, pretty telling too. Whether or not this is going to lead to uh, drastic overhaul and uh, new forms of oversight is another is another question, really. I mean, the fact is the Met backed W80, their officer, all the way to the top of the Supreme Court in arguing that unreasonably wrong decisions that could lead to a loss of life should be held outside of the accountability process. If the Supreme Court is going in one direction, uh, it doesn't seem like police forces like the Met are going uh, are following suit. What could be the wider impact of this ruling on police accountability? You know, we're talking about things like gross misconduct hearings, disciplinary hearings, but what does that result in for an officer? We're talking just about sackings here, we're talking about criminal proceedings. Usually it results in an officer getting a black mark against their name uh, if they commit any misconduct. Anything more serious than that, um, if it goes to the uh, gross misconduct or to an actual hearing, then, yeah, the possibility is that the officer gets sacked. I mean, people often get sacked in their jobs, uh, you know, in civilian life for way less than possibly unlawfully killing someone. And so it does seem to be uh, not not such a, a great form of justice that a person, uh, the most that they can look at is losing their job. But it certainly does make um, the streets a little safer from violent bad cops, essentially. It can also result in uh, criminal proceedings being brought against officers, the, uh, the disciplinary process, that is. Um, however, that still you know, requires a number of hurdles to be passed through. And often it doesn't result in anything because police often have juries on their side. Um, the case of Jordan Walker-Brown is a perfect example of uh, how police can have juries on their side. And, and in any case, I mean, the, now what we see is that the disciplinary process uh, has a more rigorous uh, approach to officers' misuse of force in the self-defence context um, than the criminal courts do. The direct impact that it will have is, is yeah, probably probably greater accountability uh, of officers, but not really the kind of justice that maybe you know people, civilians, uh, general public um, should maybe expect from a disciplinary process uh, or when the police make these kind of mistakes. Now we've got a quick break, but stay tuned. Because coming up, we will be talking about Starmer's purge of the Labour Party and more on my favourite worst topic, Britain's rail service is looking to get that much bleaker. So stay tuned for all of that. Welcome to Navarra Media's The Dustbin of History Debates. People don't have pensions, so we make people who don't have enough money to buy a property pay someone else's pension. For my rent <laughs> increase, you bastard! If I was going to define toxic masculinity... I would say choosing a Navarra masculinity panel over Carly Rae Jepsen. 
What is going on? Pathologizing masculinity too much creates the problems around it and the expectations around it. The most difficult thing of all is to take a concept that has been in some ways warped and rebuild it into something better. The crops built into the DNA is violence, anti-workers' rights, um, is racism. Police burn in the dustbin of history! We have created a global, real-time computational network. Our planet has an exoskeleton of thinking machines, satellites. What is it all for? It's to sell ad revenues and to make you distracted. The point of the media is to get to the facts. It's to get to the truth. That's the point. If you want me to start critiquing the British press, I'm happy to. Do it. Our press corps is a joke. The story in the media is already written. There is no meritocracy in media. And to be honest, in my opinion, I look at economic analysis in the media, that is not analysis. That is an entertainment product. Why are left-wing politicians held to a completely different standard? You know, we've got this huge media machine which works against any kind of politics at home. They are still quite concerned, I think, about the spectre of a socialist left which may have access the public at large. Very many millions of people want a society in which people can live in dignity, the climate is protected, and there's very little political voice for that. Our entire like political and media establishment is glued together by like whatever torturous shit these people have done to each other in like Oxbridge. They don't like Navarra media. We're still there and there's still the embryo of a successful left populist project. If you are not taking these guys and rewarding them for being right, and punishing them for being wrong, then they are not analyzing, they are fucking dancing. That is right here at Navarra Media, we are entirely powered by you, our audience. And if you want to support independent, truthful media, then head to navarramedia.com slash support and donate one hour's wage a month or whatever you think you can afford. That link is in the description and hopefully it'll get us to far more festivals and appearances around the UK than just Glastonbury because I have many more cowboy hats that I want to wear when I'm talking to everyone who supports us so much. Let's go to our next story. On Wednesday's show, we covered the news that nearly every railway station ticket office in England is set to close. The announcement was made by the Rail Delivery Group, which represents the train companies running England's railways under contracts issued by the government. The mass ticket office closures are a government push plan under the guise of cost-cutting and modernisation. The RDG claimed that ticket office staff would be moved into, quote, new engaging roles with no redundancies on the horizons. But the unions, unsurprisingly, are calling bullshit. Here's Mick Lynch, RMT boss, speaking to Robert Peston. When they say they're going to keep staff numbers the same within stations, well, we don't you don't believe them. them? Well, a year ago, they said they had no plans to shut any ticket offices. They said that in the, in the uh, Transport Select Committee, and now they're closing all of them. So I don't believe anything that the train operators say because they do what the government tells them. And the worst thing anyone in this country could do is believe what this government is telling them. There will be no regulations about staffing our stations, and they will quickly move to a position mm. where the majority of our stations are unstaffed for the majority of the time. We've already seen that in the documents that we've been given today. And they're not protecting the staff. They have issued a statutory redundancy notices. In one company, it's up to 60% of the staff. Wow. In other companies, 31%, another one, 24%. So this is a fig leaf for a drastic attack on staffing levels. And it will make our railway dehumanised. It will make it a dangerous 
and forbidding experience for many people, especially those that need assistance. And there will be no assistance there at the times it's needed. And that will mean people can't travel and they'll be more locked up in their houses. The elderly will have to rely on apps and call centres and all this kind of stuff, which is of no use to you when you want to make a, a quick journey and have that turn up and go uh, access. Now, that turn up and go access Mick Lynch is talking about is already worrying thousands of rail users across the country because, as he points out, it's not just job losses that are threatened by ticket office closures. It's the presence of much-needed staff on site at stations and a dependable place to find assistance and information. Tribune's industrial correspondent, Tarjali, has been speaking to passengers, particularly disabled ones, who fear for their ability to travel if closures go ahead. He writes... The purchase of tickets online is simply not an option for many disabled people who are more likely to be digitally excluded. In 2018, 23% of disabled people had no access to the internet compared to 6% of non-disabled adults. Ticket vending machines can also be inaccessible. According to the Royal National Institute of Blind People, only 3% of blind and partially sighted passengers are able to use a machine. The disability equality charity Scope has previously highlighted how life for disabled people costs £583 more on average a month, a brutal financial penalty exacerbated by the cost of living crisis and likely to be compounded further by the removal of ticket offices. The 50% wheelchair user discount, for instance, can only be purchased at ticket offices. The piece also features testimony from a range of disabled train users, such as Kath, who lives in Yeovil. Kath is registered severely visually impaired and uses a white cane. She can't see ticket machines and she needs assistance to find the right platform for her train. And guess what? It's ticket office staff that she relies on for that assistance. Ticket office staff give me instructions about where to walk safely, especially when there are a lot of passengers. They give guide assistance where you hold onto their elbow and they lead you. I don't know how I'd cope if they disappeared. I use stations like Yeovil Junction, Castle Carey, Exmouth. The other day it was Bridgewater. All of those stations have only one member of staff at a time and that is the ticket office staff. They will help me at Yeovil Penmill and Yeovil Junction, which both have steep footbridges with 15 to 20 steps on each side before each platform. Tarjali also spoke to Jane, who is elderly and registered blind, about her need for ticket office staff to be present in order for her to travel. Jane said this, I'm now almost completely blind. I'm not very computer literate either, so I always use the ticket office. They know who I am and what ticket I need. If they take the ticket office away and have the, they have these roaming offices, how on earth will I be able to find out where I get my ticket from? One more. This account is from Sarah Ledbetter, who lives in a rural village and uses a guide dog. Sarah said this. I need a member of staff to help me on the train, to put a ramp out for me and to tell me when my train is delayed. I can't read any print as I'm visually impaired, so I rely on staff telling me what's happening. It's pretty clear cut stuff. If you get rid of the ticket offices and the passengers who need the trains most and assistance using those trains... They're the ones who are going to suffer. Of course, this is part of the long-running managed decline of England's railway infrastructure. Services are at breaking point. Last year, Guardian analysis found that more than half of all train services departing from England's 15 busiest stations had been disrupted. And think about it. If that is the level of service being delivered at major transport hubs, imagine how bad it is in even more neglected towns and cities. 
That Guardian reporting also found that stations in the North and the Midlands suffered disproportionately from delays and cancellations. Rail prices in England are the most expensive in Europe, despite being some of the most unreliable and poorly maintained services. In the likes of Germany and France, for example, last year, free train travel schemes were being rolled out amid the cost of living crisis. But here, the government's banging this drum of cuts. It's the same story as the water companies. They privatised this national infrastructure, then they franchised it out to train companies who are making big profits and have not invested in that infrastructure at all. Now they're coming and saying, oh, it's too costly, you know, we've got to make these cuts. And who are suffering? The workers and the passengers who use them. Ironically, some of these train companies are made up of foreign investors, like, you know, the Trent Italia, which is a subsidiary of Italy's state-owned railway. And the excuses that they're using to make these cuts are passenger numbers are down. Well, duh, passenger numbers are down. The trains so poorly run that people who don't have to use them are not using them. Why would they use them when train travel is so rubbish? But the people who need them and depend on them fully and have no other choice but to use them are the ones who are going to be most affected by this. We need to be making train travel the safest, fastest, most efficient form of public transport in order for this green revolution. And the neglect that areas outside of London have suffered when it comes to linking up different spaces is completely linked to the general managed decline of you know, industry in those areas, of the economy in those areas. You look at something like Leeds, where is, where is the metro system in Leeds? It makes no sense. Mike, I want to talk to you about this. The transport system in England, I think a lot of conversations at the moment focus on London. Have you noticed a decline in London transport, but also what do you think about the general decline of train travel across the country? I mean, there is a general decline. And I think the closure of these offices, as has been mentioned through so many of those quotes, it's going to hit those who are, you know, disabled, who are in need of assistance the most, the hardest. And that really hurts. And I feel like this is an extension of in the years and years of austerity that we have seen under this conservative government, where they make these cuts and the people that hit the hardest are the people that are the most vulnerable in society. You know, it's hard to take, especially when you know, we spoke earlier about, you know, labour and class and, and the conservatives obviously have huge issues when it comes to protecting the most vulnerable in society. And you kind of feel like, who's fighting for these people? I have noticed in general that there is a, a decline in inequality of, you know, of trains. I think one thing we focus on with transport, one thing that's probably the wrong thing to focus on in transport is the idea of trying to get people to London faster. And actually, you know, London, I think we are probably blessed with some of the best transport, um, relatively speaking, in the UK. I think we actually need to focus on, you know, building up other parts of the UK and, and, and making sure that they have adequate transport when it gets, comes to getting to work, when it comes to, to buses. This is something that, you know, Andy Burnham has spoken about quite eloquently at times. So, yeah, these cuts really are going to hit, you know, people quite hard in this country. And, and we need to focus on, on improving the quality of transports across the board in this country. Damn right. And what I want to add is, you know, we talk a lot about the shrinking of these services, the shrinking of this infrastructure. It's not over yet. The whole point of this is so we can fight back against this. There is a consultation that's taking place on these train office closures. Each individual company across the rail delivery group has to consult with the public about whether this is a good idea. And I urge anyone who has a stake in this, which should be all of you, 
for the reasons that I've outlined, to go and fill out part of that consultation about what train ticket offices mean to them beyond simply being a place where you can buy train tickets. They represent so much more in terms of services and the presence of permanent staff at stations. Ticket machines, for example, can be vandalised. As we've talked about here, people need assistance from train office staff. It's a hub. I beg, we cannot let this go without a fight. Train travel is very, very important to me. I think I've mentioned on previous shows, you know, I can't drive, but as I've said, it is absolutely key. If we really want to be improving on our climate promises and we really want to be building a better country, then something like public transport and our rail networks are one of the key areas we really should be focused on. So do not let them take this away from us without fighting tooth and nail. Let's go to our next story. The BBC are finally giving some proper coverage to Starmer's purge of the left, probably because he's finished it. John McDonnell was on Newsnight this week to discuss the problem. I think what he's allowed to happen is a right-wing faction become drunk with power and use devices within the party almost on a, a search and destroy of the left. They seem to be more interested in destroying the presence of the left in the party than getting a Labour government. We all want a Labour government. We want a broad church party. We want to build the enthusiasm before the election, but we need the commitment when we're in government, when times get rough. And that's when you draw upon all, all elements of the party. You can't let one faction dominate that way and alienate others. I mean, it's interesting you're talking about being in government because you were elected in 97 when Blair came in. Um, Blair tolerated you. I seem to remember Blair tolerated Jeremy Corbyn. I also seem to remember Blair had quite a good relationship with Dennis Skinner. If you look at under Tony Blair, uh, we didn't have mass expulsions like this or anything like that. We didn't have the withdrawal of the whip unless it was something very extreme. There was, there was a, a, an atmosphere of tolerance, but actually respect as well. And the former shadow chancellor has a warning for Keir Starmer. There's a faction here that actually are so intolerant and dissent that they're removing people. It will weaken our party. And I also said to him, if you stumble, these are the people that will come for you. I think that's such an interesting point about Blair. It's probably because Blair actually really believed in the agenda that he was putting forward and therefore felt no need to expel because there actually was something at the heart of his programme, even though... You know, I'm personally not a fan of it. Um, now, the latest high-profile figure who has fallen foul of Starmer's new regime is Neil Lawson. He's a former speechwriter for Gordon Brown and the director of the soft left group Compass. He's been put under investigation for a two-year-old tweet praising a pact between the Lib Dems and the Greens. Lawson is a longtime advocate of a progressive alliance. Now, he also spoke to Newsnight. I think it's worrying. It's certainly worrying when it reaches the kind of soft left and mainstream elements of the, the Labour Party. Clearly, a party has to have discipline. If people are acting you know, around the anti-Semitism anti issue, you know, then those things have to be dealt with. But you know, I'm just a pluralist. I like working with other people. I like working with people across the whole of the Labour Party and people outside of the Labour Party to, so, to, to, to help, you know, to build a better country. And, so and if they come for me... You, you, well, go on. If they come for me, then I'm not quite sure who's, who's safe. And you can't go into government in a way that where you want to change the country if your MPs are scared, if your activists are scared. There should be a, a feeling of, of, of hope of optimism and desire to build a different country and everyone's at the moment is looking over their shoulder. Now Mick Lynch has also spoken out on the issue. He was asked by Robert Peston about McDonald's comments. John McDonald, who's on this show from time to time, last mm. night uh, saying that Keir Starmer 
that allowed a right-wing faction to take over that's drunk with power. Well, it has. It's Peter Mandelson, isn't it? And, and, and it's purging it's taken the, over the, and, and the Labour purging. Party. But do you agree that the left is being purged? From the, the left Labour is party. being purged, and we need a balance. We've got people in the centre, the people at the traditional right have got their place, mm. and the people on the left should be able to put their ideas forward. Many of the ideas that John McDonnell put forward during the last couple of election campaigns have come to, come to fruition, such as broadband being something that everybody in the country needs. People need digital access, that we can control the, the power of the utilities mm. companies and that our water companies are completely corrupt, as we found out in the last couple of days, and that public ownership itself is good in and of itself. Those ideas have come back. Keir Starmer needs to be putting some of those ideas forward in terms of housing, funding our NHS and turning this country around so that people can believe in him rather than triangulating around what he thinks Middle England thinks. He needs to deliver for working people. That's his job. And he needs to show that he's going to get on with it. Now, Mike, Starmer's strategists are more than happy to have a public spat with the left. So why should they care if the likes of Mick Lynch and John McDonnell are speaking out against him? I think they should care because Labour present themselves as this strategic party, you know, that all they're doing is geared towards winning an election in about a year's time. But this is strategically not a beneficial approach to take for a number of reasons. I mean, the first thing is, Labour historically has been a broad church, and it's something that Keir Starmer himself acknowledged in 2020. I mean, Keir Starmer literally campaigned on the idea that being Labour was a broad church, and that's something he was proud of. He literally said this um, in 2020. So the idea that someone who said that and campaigned as the unity candidate in 2020 can now essentially, following becoming the leader of the party, commit to purging the left and making that one of his central goals as a leader of the Labour Party is beyond baffling. And it says a lot about his integrity. It says a lot about, you know, his his word and, and how how much we can trust the man. You know, we talk about Boris Johnson being a liar, but, you know, Keir Starmer has been found to, to have lied a number of times. I think for Keir Starmer, it matters because strategically, you know, we can point to the fact that in 2020, you said Labour's a broad church and you're proud of that. You're trying to purge an important part of the party, you know, for, for, for very stupid reasons. So I think f for that reason, it makes no sense. But it's also, you know, I'm, I'm, we, I think this is something I always swear by myself. When you surround yourselves with people, only group of people who think like you, you're less likely to make really good decisions. I think sometimes it's important to have contrasting opinions. You know, that, that liberative process where you engage in, in a dynamic conversation with people that disagree with you ideologically can, you know, birth some really good ideas. And I think that it says a lot about maybe the ideological commitment of Starman, maybe his confidence in some of his ideas, but he feels that anyone who disagrees with him in any minor way must be expelled from the party forever. You know, so I think that says a lot about Keir Starmer. And I think also he's alienating a wing of the party that are really important come election time. So come election time, you know, lots of young left activists will be, you know, for people knocking the doors for, for Labour. So alienating this entire wing of the party and a, a party that frame themselves as a strategic winning machine or they're going to win the election next year, it makes little sense. You're going to alienate these people who go out to knock on doors for you you can alienate the entire wing of the party that have been so important for the party for a number of years. It makes very little sense. And also, losing the support of Mick Lynch is really important because Mick Lynch is, is, is popular. Mick Lynch is popular because he says it how it is and people really enjoy hearing him say how it is and stand for working people. So if you lose the support of someone like Mick Lynch as well, as the, you know, one of the most popular trade unions in this country, if you're losing his support as the leader of a Labour Party, that's not a good place to be for Keir Starmer. 
Mike, you're obviously a, a lecturer in politics. Do you think that across sort of the dominant parliamentary political parties, so Labour, Tories, uh, there's been a narrowing of what political consensus should be? Have we seen a tightening of ideological um, positioning? So anyone who sort of steps out of line is immediately bunged out into the cold or expelled from the party altogether on both sides? Absolutely. I mean, one of the rules of the game, given that we are a two-party system in this country, is that both parties, both major parties in this country, are broad churches. So the Conservative Party have, you know, or at least had in the past, you know, prior to, to Brexit, you know, members of the party who may be, you know, soft, you know, they, they were pro-European and maybe members of the party were the complete opposite. That now very much isn't the case in the Conservative Party, partly because, you know, they kicked some of these members out of the party. So we have seen in the Conservative Party, well, this trend of, well, if you don't agree with the leadership, you can you, you can do one, essentially. And Labour are doing the same thing, where, you know, anyone who expresses a view to the left of Keir Starmer in any way is being kicked out of the party or their values have been questioned or they're being placed under some formal investigation of some kind. So I think that's a real problem for our democracy, especially as we operate in a two-party system. And this ideological narrowing that we're seeing on both sides means that there are some views being excluded from the deliberative process. Now, whether you agree with them or not, given the rules of our game and given how things operate, I think it is important those voices are heard because, you know, we're not, we're not in a system like maybe in Germany where we have a number of parties that can form governments. We rely on some, in, in many ways, these two parties, you know, bringing all these different opinions that members of the public hold to the fore. Now, if you narrow these parties ideologically, a lot of you know views that members of the public have, a lot of ideological principles members of the public might have, are left off the agenda, and that's not a good thing for our democracy. Yeah, I think it's uh, quite on the nose. You know, you talk about this broad church. Well, like many churches in this country, I think probably the opening hours have been severely slimmed down, and the congregations have greatly shrunk. It's also, I really agree, Mike, with what you said earlier that as the substance is getting thinner of the ground, the political substance of what these parties stand for or their leaders or their agenda is getting thinner, the more likely they are to get puritanical about everybody agreeing with them and standing in line. Now, Mike, thank you so much for joining me tonight and for lending your brilliant thoughts to our programme. Always a pleasure, Moya. And thank you everyone for watching this evening. Remember to come back here tomorrow night, 6pm. But for now, you have been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.